The Conservative Political Action Conference is a grand gathering that brings together members of Congress, top Trump administration officials, and political activists for speeches and seminars aimed at decrying and ridiculing Democrats and liberals of every stripe. But this year, one of those attendees with a gold-level VIP ticket stoked fear and paranoia that rapidly spread through the political right. The attendee, whose identity has not been publicly disclosed, was infected with the coronavirus. He hobnobbed with high-profile speakers and may have shaken hands with the conference leader, Matt Schlapp, who later shook hands at the event with President Trump himself. As we speak, at least five members of Congress, including incoming White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, have quarantined themselves while the national freakout over the virus accelerates. Will other CPAC attendees get the lethal virus? Is the president himself at risk? We'll talk to Matt Schlapp about how he's been handling the coronavirus fears and the criticism from his fellow conservatives that CPAC hasn't done enough to keep them informed about the risk they are facing. And we'll talk to Time Magazine's Charlotte Alter about her new book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So as we uh, speak, we're taping this podcast in New York. I took the train up yesterday, uh, the Acela, from Washington to D.C. to New York, and there were two people on the car that I was um, sitting at. It was pretty remarkable that people are staying away from public gatherings and public transportation. You know, I don't think I've ever covered a story quite like this uh, in the sense that it touches every American. And, you know, talk about 9-11 and That's the, impact, what I was thinking the impact of that story. Yeah. Uh, but that was not sort of direct in the same way. I mean, it did not have the in the sense that it did not have an impact on everyone's behavior well, it for disrupted a short while. our lives. I mean, it changed right. a- a- airplane travel forever. The security we have to right. go through every time we take a flight. I mean, that's certainly an example of how 9-11 disrupted and changed our lives. And right now, this virus is disrupting and changing our lives. And the other thing is, is the and this was true of 9-11 as well, is the level of uncertainty. And uncertainty is what strikes uh, fear in people because they don't know what's coming next. We look and see, you know, started in China, but then now it's moved to Europe, which is the new China, the kind of ground zero in, in this. You see that, uh, you know, a third of Italy... Uh, is essentially under quarantine. Well, the entire country is in lockdown. Italians no, cannot well, leave no their travel. country right no, now. No travel, right, yeah. uh, in, 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 it, in Italy. And it's a um, one of these moments where 
you know, our responsibility as, as journalists is to provide as much accurate information as responsibly as we possibly can. But there's so much we don't know. We don't know how this is going to play out. And so trying to find that balance uh, between figuring out um, what people can do, uh, how they can protect themselves, and and what uh, could actually happen going forward is just a really huge challenge for us. And of course, like everything, it, it becomes a, a political story and a partisan story. And I think we'll probably see a little bit of that when we interview our first guest, Matt Schlapp, the chairman of the um, American Conservative Union, who organized the CPAC conference. But it's already having a significant impact on the campaign trail. Oh, absolutely. Uh, For one thing, I mean, the uh, the meltdown of uh, the market is uh, pretty is something that touches a lot of people. Everyone who checks their 401ks occasionally is now uh, prepared for a complete disintegration of their uh, savings. And needless to say, the political impact of that, uh, I mean, Trump gets it. Uh, you know, half his campaign strategy was a booming economy and a booming stock market. You take that away and um, you've transformed the dynamics of this presidential race. And that is, and that, by the way, is why this president seems to be doing his best to downplay the severity of this of this crisis because he knows what impact it'll have on on the markets um, and you know he there is a president does have a responsibility to calm the American people but you have to do so with accurate information um, and he has uh, not really uh, d- done that you know talking about how everyone can be tested when a tiny tiny percentage of America of Americans who've contracted the the virus or believe they may have have been tested uh, suggesting that you know people will be going to uh, work even if they have the virus uh, which is not something that people should be doing he was pretty imprecise with his language and fairly ostentatiously shaking people's hands uh, when he uh, you know when he greets them on uh, getting off of Air Force One which is something that uh, I'm not sure he ought to be doing well look let's try to get some accurate information from uh, Matt Schlapp who was at uh, was at ground zero at the CPAC conference he was presiding and let's see what we can find out from him We now have with us Matt Schlapp, the chairman of the American Conservative Union, the sponsor of the CPAC conference. Matt Schlapp, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, great to be with you both. So I guess my first question, just starting out as having been somebody who is exposed to the CPAC attendee who was infected with coronavirus, how are you feeling? I'm fine. I have no symptoms. My wife has no symptoms. My children have no symptoms. My 80-year-old mother has no symptoms. My 83-year-old father-in-law and his and, and my mother-in-law have no symptoms. Uh, we had other extended family at CPAC. None of them have symptoms. In fact, if you look at the whole 10,000 people that assembled during the course of CPAC, we have no new corona cases. And that's a pretty amazing thing considering we had one infected person that showed up at the conference with the virus, and you're in a pretty large you know, hotel with a lot of people. It demonstrates to me that even if some more people get sick, it's, it's, more, it's a more difficult virus to contract than I had thought uh, at the beginning of this. But just to be clear, Matt, when you found out that you had been exposed to this person, 
you made the decision to self-quarantine? I'm not really using that term. Um, uh, what I did is as soon as I was informed and we started figuring out, you know, the veracity of the situation, was able to get to talk to the patient. I did, uh, I, I put myself in my house and uh, my family did too. And uh, we practiced uh, separation and distance from other people. So essentially we've been staying in our house. So just tell us, I think this is important for people across the country who are thinking about this, who realize that there is the potential that they could be exposed to someone with the virus. Tell us what the process was like. When did you learn that you had had contact with this person or that this person had the virus? What did you do? How did you gather the information that you needed to ultimately make the decision that you made? And what did you learn from this process that would be useful to others who might be in the same situation that you're in? Those are all good questions. But let me start with, I think, my most important lesson after dealing with this for several days now. The thing is, is your symptoms. Uh, Don't be so worried that you might have been exposed because my guess is at this point in the the expansion of this virus that almost everybody's been exposed. You know, so this idea that you know that you could have been exposed because somebody where you were has tested positive, I can understand why that rings alarm bells in your mind, but we should all be operating as if there's a chance we can be exposed or we've been exposed. So that's why the CDC and others are saying, you know, wash your hands constantly. So when the president and vice president were at CPAC, I mean, it was scrub-a-dub-dub constantly, lots of Purell. Um, Everyone's taking a lot of precautions. Robert O'Brien was at CPAC. Every couple of minutes, one of his assistants squirted his hands with Purell. This is, I know it seems like a basic step, but those are the types of things we can do. You know, you don't have to give everybody a French kiss when you see him. You can say hello. You can wave your hands. You can do the fist bump. You can knock elbows. There's other ways, and those aren't foolproof ways either, I understand, but uh, there are precautions you can take. And so I think the one thing we have to be careful of is after CPAC uh, and this one uh, person having the virus, a lot of people in our area started thinking they had to shut down all the schools. You have to shut down all the neighborhoods. You have to shut down other places where people congregate. And actually, if we all quarantined in our houses, it would be a good way to not spread the virus. That's true. But in a free society, that's a difficult thing to get everyone to do. So what we need to do is once you know you have the symptoms, which starts uh, with a fever, the state of Maryland has said, check your temperature twice a day if you're worried. If you have a fever spike, then call your doctor. Then start the process of getting health care that you need. So, uh, Matt, I just want to drill down on the timeline here. The CPAC conference was February 26th through February 29th. You said everybody was doing rub-a-dub-dub Purell uh, every minute constantly. Did you know in real... Hand sanitizer stations okay. around. Like, I give the hotel and the state of Maryland a lot of credit. They they took a lot of precautions as we got into CPAC. All right, but Matt, did you know in real time during the conference that one of your attendees was infected with the virus? No, no, I didn't know until CPAC ended on the 29th, a Saturday, as you know, when the president was done. So I don't know what time that was at five o'clock ish or something like that, and I wasn't notified about the problem until the following Saturday. A week later. And you yeah, said notified notified by whom and what were you told? I talked to uh, the patient's brother, who is someone that I know because of past CPAC experiences. 
and uh, he uh, told me about the positive test and that it had been verified by the CDC. And then I started to have interactions with the uh, federal government as well. And, you know, I just had to learn quickly on the steps that needed to be taken. And the first step that we thought was very important was to take what is private medical information and make as much of it possible as was appropriate. So we immediately started working on how do we tell everybody who was there that they could have been potentially in contact with somebody with corona. So how do you do that? I mean, you email, you have everyone's email. You emailed everybody who attended, all 10,000 people who attended the conference? You know, uh, I'm going to be honest with you guys. It has been such a whirlwind for four days. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to over-dramatize what I've had to do, but it has been it has been very intensive work. So I might have some details that, I, that, aren't, um, that are not going to be easily recalled, but yes, we have been emailing and talking to the 10,000-person CPAC community multiple times. I, you know, my, call, my phone has not stopped ringing from people with basic questions, attendees that are concerned, members of the media who were there. So, yeah, we immediately informed the CPAC community, and on, a, I believe, at exactly the same time, actually, I do remember this part. We, like, pressed go twice. One was informing all the CPAC community and then also sending out a tweet letting folks know that um, we had learned this fact. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, you guys know how busy CPAC is. We we are exhausted at the end of CPAC, and we kind of thought, wow, that was one for the record books, closed the book on it, even though there's a lot of follow-up to do. And it was quite a shock to learn this a week later. So, Matt, the uh, uh, the individual in question has been identified as a 55-year-old man from Englewood, New Jersey, who had a VIP pass for CPAC. This is somebody you know. I do know the person who is uh, was infected or is infected with corona. And just to be clear, the person's infected. Is that person ill? Is he, is he suffering any consequences? Yes. He is ill. Yes, although I don't. I don't know how legally appropriate it is for me to reveal his health care challenges. But yes, he is not just in isolation because he tested positive. He's in a hospital, which we, which we did make public, which we included in our public announcement that he's in a hospital. You're, you're in a hospital because you're getting medical care. That was a few days ago. What is your current information about how that person is doing? I just sent out a tweet, and I'm uh, in regular contact with this patient. And with his family, and uh, he's making steady progress. They feel very optimistic. They're very relieved. So you shook this person's hand at the conference. I'm not sure of that. No, I don't think I did. It's possible. You know, I meet. It's 10,000 people there. I know, Mike, you've been there. I, I make pretty fast progress around that hotel. I'm, I'm on the go the whole time. A lot of selfies. A lot of handshakes. And all candor. A lot of very quick conversations, not too many very long conversations. So my interaction with him, I described as incidental, and I think that's accurate. And and you have not gotten tested, is that correct? Because you haven't... Upon advice of the medical community, they believe that a test should only be administered if you have the symptoms. So all these questions about whether the president has been tested or not, or the vice president has been tested or not, are off mark. With the number of tests that are available... 
uh, what the medical uh, professionals would like is for those tests to be used when someone comes into a doctor's office and says, I have a fever, I have these other symptoms, I need to find out now whether I have it because I need to find out whether I should restrict my movement. But Matt, it, you greeted the president at CPAC. You shook his hand. Doesn't you... matter. Neither one of us, neither one of us have Corona. We're fine. Well, we don't. You haven't been tested, and the president hasn't been well, tested. Let me so be clear we don't about that. Right? Yeah, we do know because we know with as much certainty as you can have in life. You do realize with medical tests. I'm sure. You, I, I I know you both. I know you're both of an age. I'm not going to pick on Mike here, <laughs> but um, I'm of an age too, where you do know even with tests, medical tests, the most serious of medical tests, there are false positives. Let me let me just put a punctuation on this. When my oldest daughter, I have five. Uh, I've gotten to know her very well over the last couple of days. When she was first born, the doctor held her in his arms and said she had Down syndrome, and she does not have it. Doctors make mistakes. Medical tests make mistakes. It's wrong for us to assume that the test will always be right. There will be some mistakes in tests. The clearest form to know whether or not you should be on the road to being concerned about the fact that you have corona, it starts with a temperature spike. At least this is according to the health officials in the state of Maryland and the directive they gave to all these employees and people in the area, check your temperature twice a day if you're concerned. If it spikes, immediately call call your healthcare professionals or, or the public authorities or call your doctor and then take the next step. But if everybody rushes out now, if all the 10,000 people from CPAC had immediately rushed to get a test, as you all know, because this virus hit us a bit by surprise, there probably won't be enough tests for everybody. Same thing with hospitals. Everybody immediately says, oh, my God, I have you know, an earache. i got to run to the emergency room. The country is going to be in a rough place for those people who really are sick, like this person from New Jersey. Well, well, Matt, speaking of that, I mean, having gone through this yourself, do you have a sense that— By the way, I 100 percent— do not have the coronavirus. No, I, no but having— 100% does not have the coronavirus. I think it's important to keep saying because sure. there's been— You said skullduggery is the name of your show. I love the show. There's been a lot of poor media performance on the state of my health and the fact that I infected the president and the entire cabinet, et cetera, and uh, it's inaccurate. But you took, I guess you would consider, prudent actions based on being exposed to someone who did have— the coronavirus. Um, but I didn't and, know they had it. Remember, I didn't know they had it. No, I understand that. But subsequently... You... He didn't know he had it either, by right. the way. I mean, this is the way this can work. He didn't know he had it. He actually removed himself from the conference on Friday as soon as he knew that he was starting to have some... Had he been, had I, he well, been just, overseas, just... by the way? Just one quick question on... You know, uh, when somebody's sick in the hospital, you probably don't get all the answers to all the questions. My understanding is that he had not traveled overseas recently, and that's not where he was infected. That's my understanding. Any sense of where he was infected, how he contracted it? It would all be conjecture on my part. So what I was going to ask you, Matt, is having gone through this process, having made the decision to self-isolate, or however you you want to say it, do you think that we as a a society are overreacting to this? Yes. There, There is a sense of a kind of a national... Ishikoff used the term a national freakout or a national hysteria. How do you if, think if we should calibrate it? If you're my mom's age, you're 80 years old, she came to CPAC, she, you know, she was ha- going to have to travel back on an airplane, and she did. She's had a lot of health challenges. She's on a great health path now. But, you know, I, would, I could tell. She made her, it made her nervous. 
My uh, father-in-law is 83. He's got a lot of health challenges. He's got kidney problems. I mean, this makes those people nervous. That's why I think the 5,000 stories that have been written about CPAC mostly to create panic and alarm, not all of it, but most of it, it's really a disservice to those people. I'll tell you, I'm talking to them on the phone at nauseum because actually they do need to be concerned. If you're 80 years old plus, maybe even a little younger than that, if you do have health issues, your concern's completely legitimate. The problem is, is that because, for instance, in our case, they said, well, our kids shouldn't go to school because they've been near me. Once you start doing the, well, this person was near that person was near that person, the only health solution to that is for everyone to quarantine. Because I guarantee you something, fellas, you've been exposed to this virus. And I'm not a doctor, so listen to doctors, but this virus is in a lot of places. And you didn't just get exposed to it at CPAC. Matter of fact, here's the craziness of it. APAC started when CPAC ended in downtown Washington, D.C. They had two cases that have since been discovered. Another case during the conference or shortly thereafter from their attendees. They had 20 elected Democrats from Congress, Mike Bloomberg, Charles Schumer, Jeffries, lots of Democrats and some Republicans go to uh, the APAC conference. Can't find a story on it can't find a story. This is the insanity of the, the media uh, panic or whatever well, you want to call isn't, it. Okay, but isn't the reason that people are writing about CPAC is because someone there had so contracted great. the virus? Nope, that's a lie. And the president Not was a there. lie, but that's untrue. The he contracted the virus, came to CPAC, and found well, a week I, later that I, it was corona, and that's APAC, just so you know, if we're going to, if we're going to, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. By the way, I think APAC has done a very responsible job. This is not aimed at them, but the meet the same reporters who live in the same city who are badgering me about the fact that I might have acted res- irresponsibly with one case of corona are not covering three cases of corona down the street where Democrats assembled. And I do think that it's, it, that is very unfortunate. Well, uh, Matt, one of the reasons for that is you've gotten a lot of criticism from your fellow conservatives who are at CPAC like about who? the way this was handled. Like uh, Raheem Kassam, the yep, editor-in-chief you know of National Raheem Post, Kassan? said he was you apoplectic to learn you know about this. And Let's go yeah. through that. Okay. Let's go through it. Do you know why Raheem Kassam is worried? Well, he said he wasn't because feeling he, well after attending yeah. the conference. So what do you do when you don't feel well, Mike? We've just gone through this. If you feel like if you have a temperature <laughs> stay spike, at home. what do you do? <laughs> stay at home. Yeah, and you go to your doctor. Right. Instead, what this gentleman decided to do was take to Twitter and induce a near panic. I'm sorry that Raheem was not uh, included on our speaker schedule, and I'm sorry that he has a bone to pick with us. But using a healthcare moment of uh, where people are worried to use that to try to stick a uh, a stake in my heart was a mistake. And uh, there were other people associated. Look, my movement isn't perfect. We, it's, it's, it's you know, got a lot of characters in it. And I think the conservatives who have acted irresponsibility, ir- irresponsibly here, I hold them in the same contempt as I hold reporters who are simply trying to make this a big political deal. But, now, but that's look, not all reporters, but it's a fair number. <laughs> but look, I mean, Matt, you're blaming the media, you're blaming Democrats, uh, but, you know, one of the reasons the that's... Well, one of the reasons that's driven... The coverage. One of the things that's driven this story is we have five members of Congress, including Senator Ted Cruz, Doug Collins of Georgia, the new White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, who have all self-quarantined themselves because, because they... Because 
attended your conference. No, isn't that's that a wrong. Re- isn't that no. feeding the story? <laughs> Mike, you're yes. asking good questions, so I'm going to give you good answers. Okay. Those members are quarantined because we have been going through an exhaustive process of trying to talk to as many people as possible to ascertain who this person might have interacted with. I find it ironic that with the coronavirus going all around the country, and we're having these outbreaks, or at least people who are infected, that it's the CPAC conference with only one person who has corona that has resulted in lawmakers uh, quarantining. Now, there is a Democrat. But these are lawmakers who attended CPAC. If you could let me finish, it would be so fantastic. (laughs) There is one Democrat who is also quarantined herself, but you had 20 elected officials. Here's what. I, here's the challenge I give you, Mike. 20 Democratic elected officials went to APAC. They are still within their nine-day window when almost all of the viruses are in their incubation. This virus is in its incubation. I can't find a story where any reporter asked Charles Schumer, you went to APAC where there are three cases. How do you know that you didn't have any contact with the person? There's no attempt to find out who these people are. Well, wait a second. I have to it- say that the, the media coverage of this, not by all, but by most, has been appalling. But in the case of Cruz, for example, he said he knew the individual who was infected and he interacted with that person at the conference. That's inaccurate. Nobody knew at the conference who was infected, including the person who was infected. Ted Cruz knew a week later, right? uh, because I called him, that we had found evidence that there had been interaction. So that's when he learned, and then he decided, in consultation with the attending physician in Congress and his own healthcare professionals, to make the statement he made. Why, why did nobody – let me ask this question. I think it's important. You have Democratic and Republican law congressional officials going to a lot of public events, and events like APAC where they found three corona cases. All I'm saying is this. If the media doesn't want to make it seem like this is just a way to bring Trump down – just follow Corona where it leads you. It didn't just lead you to CPAC. It led you to APAC. They're in their nine-day window. Why don't you ask some of these Republicans and Democrats who went to APAC, how do they know that the protocols were followed and that they didn't have exposure? I think it's a fair question. Let me ask you a broader Do you think that's a fair question? I, I think it's, look, I think there are a lot of questions that need to be asked of a lot of people right now. I don't know that that's top of the list because right yeah, now Mike, the country Mike, wants to get a Democrats handle. Go to a conference yeah. with three people that have corona and what you're telling me is you're not going to validate the thing. My question that it's fair to ask those 21 members, have you, has anyone communicated to you whether or not you might have had exposure to the three corona cases that were at that conference. I'm getting those calls and I'm answering those calls. How come there are no calls going into a conference that predominantly has Democrats show up? It's just ridiculous. Well, wait a second. Didn't didn't Pence speak at AIPAC? Yeah, so why, why, so, why I mean, are there no APAC is bipartisan. APAC. There's plenty of Republicans I, who attend APAC conferences. I don't Democrats see this as a partisan thing. Mike, Mike I'll, I'll be quiet. Read, give me your recollection of the one news story that's been written about corona at APAC. I will, I will be quiet and listen. Uh, well, I wasn't prepared for that particular question. Because it doesn't but exist. I will, but I, because I, it doesn't I, exist. I, I, it wasn't I, at the top of I your news knew. feed <laughs> because it doesn't exist. 
I, I'm pretty sure I read stories in multiple news outlets that APAC attendees had infected the virus. So I mean, and I'm you, aware and you of saw it. The fo- and you yeah. saw the intrepid follow-up questions from members of the media. All right. That would have, that would have forced some Democrat members to also quarantine, All right? right? Let, me, let me ask you a broader question here, because clearly we do have something like a national freakout right now, and uh, certainly uh, the 2,000-point uh, drop in the Dow on Monday is, is pretty good evidence of that. And part of it is, I think you might agree, because there is so much distrust of government institutions right now that anything the public is told they are instinctively a questionable question about and skeptical about and part of that is because we have a president who has fed precisely that sort of fear and paranoia and conspiracy theories that have undermined our trust in public institutions would you I reject just you know I reject everything you just said everything Everything. <laughs> like every word I'm of a it. Okay. Let, yeah. let, let's let me yeah. go pre-Trump. Let me go okay. pre-Trump for just yeah. a minute. Right. It is not a Trump phenomenon that to have a healthy skepticism of your government and the many mistakes it makes. That that is that is a foundational principle to our country. The conservative movement is primarily established on the idea that the government gets so many of things wrong it attempts to do. Now maybe you're sensitive to the fact that he also has taken on the news media. But I have to say, after living through the last three or four days of the coverage we had at CPAC and trying to find some way to have balance on the conservative policies Trump is initiating his agenda, I have to say this is the news media's worst hour in the history of our country. Speaking of of the president, Matt, would you say that he has been in, in his rhetoric and his comments on coronavirus been a model of precision and accuracy and you know because those aren't those aren't the virtues that i ascribe with Donald Trump. he is not some kind of phd in administrative law well does, okay. okay all right but i, I don't but, know if that's exactly the standard that we're talking about just sort of simple basic consistency look, and wilson honesty did have, yeah. woodrow wilson did have his phd and he got us into a disastrous war and was a segregationist so i don't know okay what all right but let me let me just go through a couple of the things you know you know, he said, I think yesterday, that everybody can be tested now. I mean, the reality is like 5,000 people have been tested. That's it. Now, more tests are coming online. But he said everyone can be tested now. Let me try to explain. He, um, I, in all candor, he might have left some words out. <laughs> but the, what, what the doctors, and I've talked to a lot of healthcare professionals over the course of the last three or four days, and quite honestly, in preparation to the conference, what the advice from the community is, those who show the symptoms should get the tests, and there are enough tests. However, there are people that have the symptoms that have had some difficulty getting the tests because you could have too many tests in one part of the country and not enough in the other, and it, sometimes it can take some days. And I know that increases people's, you know, their stress about this whole situation. One other thing that he said, which is there was this cruise ship uh, off of uh, San Francisco with a significant number of people who had contracted the virus. The medical professionals were saying that they should come ashore. 
The president eventually agreed to that. He, he was opposed to it at first, and he said publicly that he didn't want them coming ashore because of the, the impact that that would have on the numbers, and it wasn't our fault. The numbers were going to go up, and it wasn't our fault. Is that responsible coming from the president of the United States when these people were suffering on a ship and the medical advice was they should come ashore? I think we all think that if you are suffer, if you have the symptoms, and if certainly if you've tested positive, that you definitely should be quarantined and you should get the health care you need. Where that occurs, I, I don't know if I'm the right guy to answer that. If that's on a ship or in a hospital or in a hotel that's dedicated to these people, I don't. But what do you I make? Know, but I do okay, think it but makes what do you, but Matt, what do you make people who can transmit and keep them away from the general population? I, I like that idea. But what do you make of his preoccupation with? the numbers, the impact that that would have. That sounds like... He has the preoccupation or the media covering it. I'd like to know the answer to that one because all well, the cover, I've read so much coverage uh, over the course of the last several days, and there is a lot of disinformation out there, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of this is a tenor. The president is mishandling this, and it's growing by exponential numbers, and it's growing out of control. And that is the theme of much of the coverage, and I think that that's part of the reason why people get so scared. I mean, it's scary for my mom to read that. So why don't we all take a breath? And if the president's part of this, take a breath, and let's try to not make it bigger than it is. Don't hype it. I actually think that's the responsible thing to do right now. But look, I mean, the numbers are going up and going they up are. pretty dramatically. We're now up to like 800 cases, 27 deaths, and that is a serious problem. It's a crisis it that the country's Especially facing. for the so, 27 people and their right. families, it's terrible. So is it really helpful to turn this into a partisan food fight no. in which Republicans no. are blasting Democrats and vice no. versa, and you're blasting the media. And, you know, is you know that what really I, going what... into C, going into CPAC, the idea that America was going to face Corona? I knew there would be people that would make politics of over it. I think the Democrats made a mistake on the supplemental to some of them to make po- to, to turn us into a political question. But after watching this attempt to turn Corona into like the CPAC infection model and, uh, and, and, and the coverage of it. I will tell you, Mike, there are plenty of people in the media establishment who are guilty of turning this into a partisan thing. And I think the fact that you didn't even agree that 21 elected Democrat officials going to APAC and not much coverage of it, no questions of the members whether or not they know whether or not they had contact, including the Senate leader, Charles Schumer, tells me that you're fo- you want to focus on one case at CPAC and the fact that you think that I might be, might have picked it up and I might have given it to the president. And I didn't. And I'm healthy and he's healthy. And I think that's a damn shame that that's where the coverage goes. Now, maybe it's because he's the president and he just gets all the attention. Yeah. And no one else gets any attention. He's and the you're president. Gonna, that's, just, right. that's just the way it is. But you yourself just said the vice president spoke at APAC, and you can't see any coverage about corona at other conferences. Look, how many people have the how many people have corona in this country? You just went through the numbers. I think we're up to eight hundred, seven hundred ninety-four, just before we Did came on. Did any of them the, ha- the happen to interact with any Democrats? Pretty fair question. <laughs> I'm sure, but I, I, that so. just strikes me as kind of a preposterous question, Matt. I mean, who cares whether they a- interacted with I Democrats don't. or Republicans? I it's don't. real so people who have questions. the disease. Here's the deal. Yeah. Let's quit talking about it in terms of party, and let's have the national media quit torturing 
CPAC over the fact that one attendee came to CPAC with corona and one person left CPAC with corona. It's actually a good story that should make people relax. Not that they can't get it, but that it's hard to get it. And 50% of the people that come to CPAC are high school and college kids, and it reiterates the fact that younger people, it's very difficult for them to get the virus. The story out of CPAC should be a calming story, but they refuse to tell that story. All right. You've said you're 100% sure you are not sick. You don't have no, the virus. No, let me, but, let, me okay. try to, let me try to use better words. All right. I don't know in this life with your health, you can be 100% sure of anything. Right. I'm telling you, I had no symptoms for corona. And I've talked to my doctor, and I've talked to other healthcare professionals. I've talked to some doctors with some pretty impressive letters after their name. Let's just say that. And they have all told me that I'm clear, that I should not worry about this. If I get a fever, call them back. So now are that, you... for the American people, is the certainty that you can have. Because I guarantee you, if you've been to a grocery store, a movie theater, a restaurant, something like that, certainly in the D.C. area, the percentage chance that you have been exposed to corona is high. So that shouldn't panic you. That should make you realize you could have been exposed and you could be just fine. And it's actually harder to pick up this virus, especially if you're very careful with cleaning your hands and how you interact with others. It's very hard to get it. That should make you be calm. Doesn't mean that you should have a false sense of security, but you should be relaxed and calm and listen to the facts. So just my last question is, we're now 10 days past the time that you were potentially exposed. You have no signs. Are you lifting your ban on going out of the house? (laughs) I'm glad that you care about me, Mike. Now we're back to questions that that are good. The, um, uh, the the, The period of time that's critical Uh, for the incubation is nine days after contact. So we're well through the nine days, well through it. So upon doctor's advice, uh, I could absolutely uh, do anything I wanted to. I'm going to still take this day by day. I stayed in my house today. I'll make a decision about what I do tomorrow. The one thing I have to, I'm not a famous person, but I may be notorious. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and I don't want to get the last thing I want to do. I've, I've been actually it's been pretty hard on my kids. I want to get serious for a second here. I got five little girls. It's been very hard for them because people have said some terrible things because they read terrible things about how their father infected the president. And it's a sad thing for them. And they've had their people in there and that they thought they were friends with say some pretty horrible things. So when reporters write things that are wrong about people who have kids, um, it's hard for the families. This has been a hard, hard little stretch for my family, but they're brave little girls and. They're looking at the coverage, and they're saying, Dad, why do they say things that aren't true? And I say, you know what, kids? You're going to have to deal with this your whole life. And so we're going to take this day by day. Uh, And the country is going to be fine. If you actually look – you guys are good reporters. If you actually look at the numbers with other you know, outbreaks like this, we're not in a terrible position. It could get worse. The best news for America, maybe not the globe, but for American people in this part of the globe – is this virus has a very difficult time surviving when the weather gets warm. So I spent a lot of time in the sun yesterday. You know, there are things you can do, uh, sit by the fireplace. Uh, There are things you can do to make sure that the virus, that you're more protected from the virus. And I'm not the doctor, but go to the CDC website, really follow that. It was scary to think that I could have had this. It's scary for the other people who came to CPAC that thought they could have had this. The greatest news as of today is that nobody picked it up. And, uh, and we should tell that story more often, which is, yes, there are the victims and there are the people who are worried, but there are the people who haven't gotten it and won't get it. And thank God, because can you imagine if this was a virus that you could pick up easily and almost everybody was getting it? 
we would be in panic as a country. Well, Matt Schlapp, thanks for joining us, uh, sharing your experience on this. And of course, we hope you stay well. I am well. Don't worry about me. I am 100% (laughs) well, and so is my family. All right. right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Matt. Bye, guys. Thank you. We are now joined by Charlotte Alter, Time Magazine correspondent and author of the fascinating new book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Charlotte, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you guys so much for having me. And congratulations on the book. It's really a great read, a look at um, millennials who are in Congress, in the political world, and making an impact. How did you decide to do this book? Well, I started thinking about this book on the day that Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement because it was such a moment that just seemed very obviously to me an act of generational warfare. I mean, this guy was was, at that point, he was 71 years old. He was the oldest first-term president. He was elected overwhelmingly by white voters over 65, surrounded in his cabinet by men in their 70s and 80s. When I looked at the senators who had encouraged him to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, it was all these guys in their 70s and 80s and a couple guys in their 60s. And I just, it was the first time I thought to myself, oh my gosh, you know, this administration is, it's like the old eating the young in some ways. And then as soon as I began to see that, I began to see that that was happening on immigration. It was happening on student debt. It was happening on, you know, trans rights in the military, an issue that young people care a lot about, but there aren't a lot of septuagenarian trans people <laughs> in in the military. And um, so then I, I began thinking about the generational divide that we have, and I, I didn't really want to write a screed. So I figured I would start going around and looking for the young people who were trying to, you know, change the system from the ground up. And that's how I came to this. So, Charlotte, your thesis is that the millennial generation is poised to take over and is going to have a huge impact on our politics and um, policies and our values as a society. And they are, I guess, soon to be the largest generational cohort in the country. So by the numbers, that makes sense. But here we are recording this on the day of uh, another primary. And the irony, of course, is that uh, the three presidential candidates in this race are all septuagenarians, and some of them are almost octogenarians. So why do you think that's the case, and what's the timeline for this generational takeover? I think that's a great question. So, you know, the challenge with a project like this is that obviously you can't see the future, but I think one thing we can all agree on is that young people grow old and that old people don't last forever. You know, that's just a fact of human life, right? I don't think if I can you can just prove that. that, you will have a major bestseller on your hands. Right, right. I wish, you know what, that I would be rich if I could find <laughs> um, a, a way around that one. But yeah, so I mean, the the question of course is when, right? So, I think it's pretty clear that we're not going to see a millennial president in 2020, obviously, but in some ways, the more top-heavy our government gets, and the 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 more we have guys in their seventy late seventies, early eighties in positions of power, the closer that turnover becomes. Because we're not Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders is not going to be in charge in ten years. Period. 
if, for example, we were talking about a Ted Cruz or a Kamala Harris, there would be an argument that maybe, okay, well, you know, they've got another 20 years in them. And, you know, but but we're really seeing the last gasp of a particular 20th century style of politician. Bernie Sanders is, is in some ways like an exception to that because he's got so much support from young people and he is talking about ideas that were really unpopular in the 20th century. But I think that it's pretty clear that even that no matter who we elect president this time, you know, that same man in their late 70s is not going to be. And of course, Pete Buttigieg, right. I mean, 38 years old now, and he won Iowa and, uh, you know, did pretty well in, in New Hampshire. Just talk a little bit about the impact uh, that this generate when it does finally become the sort of leadership generation. What is the, uh, the impact that uh, millennials will have on on American politics. So for this book, I talked to, just to kind of explain my parameters, I was looking at elected leaders who were born between 1981 and 1996 in both parties. I talked to more Democrats than Republicans because this generation leans Democratic, but they're not all Democratic, so I have a couple Republicans in there too. I think the way to look at it is that millennials have a broad agreement on some of the problems that they're going to face in the later part of the century, but they disagree on the solutions. So young Democrats and young Republicans agree that climate change is a problem and agree that it's caused by humans and agree that the government has to do something about it. They disagree on exactly what that is. Young Democrats and Republicans, again, remember, this generation is the most racially diverse in history. They tend to agree that racial diversity is good and is something that is like an important and that we should live in a multiracial society and that people should be treated with respect. They tend to disagree on exactly what that should look like. And there there are sort of internal culture wars on sort of woke politics. Mm-hmm. But there, you know, gay marriage is sorry, marriage equality is something that young Republicans have basically given up on. That's like a, an, an issue of the past. Tech regulation is something that young Democrats and young re- Republicans agree is something that the government has to do more on, that you know the federal government should be doing more to regulate companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google. Foreign affairs is interesting yeah. to me. I noticed uh, in your book that you uh, had a statistic that I think only a third of millennials believe that America is the greatest country in the world. Right. That's a shift. Yeah. But I mean, think about it. Like this this generation, you know, this book starts on 9-11, right? Because that was in a lot of ways a real formative moment for people this age. And, you know, in the 20 years since, they've seen the U.S. get into two disastrous foreign foreign wars that were based on faulty intelligence, either either a mistake or a lie, whichever way you look at it. So it doesn't surprise me very much that that they're much less likely to think that America is the greatest country in the world. But look, so the strength of the book is these portraits of your characters from Pete Buttigieg, who you were on to long before uh, the rest of the world heard heard of him, to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course. You've also got a few Republicans in there, uh, Elise Stefanik, a sort of moderate Republican from upstate New York who emerged as one of Donald Trump's biggest defenders in impeachment, Dan Crenshaw, a hard right conservative uh, from Texas, former Navy SEAL. And I guess, although each of the portraits is fascinating, I struggle a little bit with what unites them, because these are 
people coming from very different perspectives. Max Rose, another one, uh, Staten Island, Brooklyn congressman, conservative to centrist Democrat, completely opposed to almost everything AOC stands for. What is it that is the common bond among your characters? So, Other than their age. Right. So I think, you know, there are a couple things that I mentioned earlier. Climate change is one of them. Familiarity with technology is another one. You know, everyone, no matter where they're coming from on the ide- ideological spectrum, understands modern technology and what and the way th- the ways that it's fundamentally reshaped our society in a way that Chuck Grassley doesn't right okay I think you pointed Fair out enough. that Chuck Grassley yeah. was in kindergarten when the <laughs> when the chocolate chip cookie was invented yeah yeah imagine that you know this guy's helping to regulate Facebook you know? yeah. so so I I think that that's one of them another one is that you know you are seeing on some social issues, but not all social issues, like abortion is an exception to this. But on most social issues, this generation is moving towards a more a more tolerant perspective and not getting as bogged down with some of the the like Christian right culture wars that were happening in the 90s. But I also think more broadly, you know, I'm not arguing that they're all the same and that they all agree with each other and that they're all ideologically similar and they're going to act in lockstep with each other. The point of the book is that the situation that we have now, a government that is run of, by, and for old people, is not sustainable and won't exist in the exact way that it does now in 10 years. And so in some ways, this book is just meant as almost an introduction to some of the people who might stay relevant if they lose, if they don't lose their elections, you know, and and just kind of like a, hey, there are other people who matter in American democracy besides Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. So he, here's one of the many ironies that occurred to me while sure. reading the book. Um, you do have this great portrait of Pete Buttigieg and uh, just who he was and where he came from and what he was like in Harvard and all that. But as the campaign was playing out, I noticed that uh, Buttigieg was not getting all that much support from his fellow millennials. Exactly. In fact, I have a millennial nephew who's a big Bernie guy, and I was grilling him a bit on this uh, over the uh, holidays. And when I mentioned Buttigieg, he used the word contempt. Oh, he yeah. Had contempt. My, my kids Buttigieg. use the word twerp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> twerp. That young so, people don't have, they don't, yeah. they, they're not big fans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So here's, you know, in many ways, the most accomplished millennial who's gone further than anybody else, you know, a guy who was a serious contender for the presidency. And, you know, he gets that kind of tepid reaction yeah, uh, or worse from his fellow millennials. How do you explain it? I mean, because I don't think that millennial politics is necessarily about supporting other millennial politicians. And in fact, one of the things that I've heard from voters on the campaign trail this cycle is uh, it's really interesting how voters of different ages see age. So, for example, younger voters are not at all bothered by Bernie Sanders's age. It doesn't matter to them. They like him on 
the that's policies. The great, that's the that is yeah. the irony. The right. oldest yes. candidate had the most support right. from young voters, right. and the youngest candidate may have had the least. Yes, exactly. And I think that a lot of it has to do with Pete's policies. People, you know, he's significantly more moderate than Sanders, and as we are seeing in the polls right now, voters under forty are like breaking for Sanders by unbelievable margins. But also, when I would talk to voters in their let's say early sixties, earlier mid sixties, they voiced the greatest concern about Biden's age and Sanders' age. And it was because they understood what aging meant. They understood what aging does to your mind and your body. And they were saying things to me like, you know, I'm slowing down. I'm having a harder time running after my grandkids. I forget my keys sometimes. How could somebody 15 years older than me take on the most challenging job on the planet? And I think younger voters don't have, you know, they just are more likely to say, oh, well, you know, Seems fine. They say that he's fine after his heart attack. I like him on the issues. I'm with him. But there, isn't it with with Sanders? Isn't it also that young people are responding to his authenticity and his conviction as a politician? Don't doesn't this generation feel like they've been lied to since they were young? That finally here's someone who not only is expressing policies that we agree with, but is a a true kind of conviction candidate and does not. And Pete, on the other hand, feels a little bit like the kind of politician who's very polished, a little mass produced. Yeah, know. he's like the he's like what Michael Kinsley called an old person's idea of what a young person should be. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. What was it that Sharon uh, Weinberger, our uh, Washington bureau chief, called him an algorithm? Yeah, <laughs> right. A candidate created by algorithm. Yeah. So I think that's exactly right. And I also think, you know, in some in some ways what this book tries to trace is the series of establishment failures that happened in during the early adulthood of the millennial generation and why they're so skeptical. So, like, if you think about it, 9-11 and the wars that followed, maybe not 9-11 itself, but the wars that followed 9-11 represented a total failure in many millennials' minds of the foreign policy establishment, Right. They said that we should go to get into this war, and it turned out to be a huge disaster. The financial crisis was a failure of the financial establishment. Everyone who said that they understood how markets worked and they were supposed to be in charge of managing our economy were totally wrong, right? A lot of millennials see the failure of Hillary Clinton and the election of Donald Trump as a failure of the political establishment, particularly in the Democratic Party. So you have a, these th- this series of establishment failures in rap in fairly quick succession, you know, over the course of just really 15 years. And that can help explain why so many millennials are so attracted to somebody who is not only a conviction candidate, but is defined by his anti-establishmentarianism and who seems to reject a lot of the things that they think have already failed them. But why should we think that this is uh, that this new generation is somehow going to lead to a new politics? I mean, first of all, I mean, certainly the idealism of youth, which over time, you know, turns into the pragmatism and perhaps wisdom of getting older is a common theme in throughout history. This happens all the time. What makes you think that this millennial generation is somehow going to break the mold in any meaningful way? So I think this is an important distinction to make. I'm not arguing that they're going to be better 
I'm not arguing that millennials are going to come into power and it's going to be this utopia of all the, you know, everything's going to work better and everyone will treat each other nicely and America will be, you know, like a happy and joyful place. I'm arguing that it will be different. That the that the particular that you know millennials will make their own their own mistakes. They'll come in with their own flawed assumptions. They'll make their own strategic errors. But that those mistakes will be different in kind than the mistakes that boomers made. Because and this is I think central to the argument of the book that people build their political assumptions based in their build their political attitudes based in the experiences of their early adulthood. And that baby boomers are fundamentally different from millennials, mostly because they are building their politics based off of a different set of experiences in early adulthood. So, I mean, I think socialism is probably the best example of this, right? Baby boomers think of socialism. They think of the Soviet Union. They think of Cuba. They think of gulags and bread lines and horrific war and starvation. Millennials think of socialism you know, millennials who, by the way, the oldest ones were nine when the Berlin Wall fell, right? They think of socialism and they think of Sweden where there's free child care and, you know, universal health care and, you know, accessible education for everybody. I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. They could be wrong. The point is that it's different and that when this generation is in charge, we will have a different set of assumptions guiding the way our leaders and our voters act. But isn't it also the case that, uh, I mean, you suggest that millennials are going to usher in, you know, a new age of kind of progressive politics. But in 2018, when um, AOC was elected and she was the shiniest of that class, you know, most Democrats who were elected and I think a lot of younger Democrats actually were centrists, were were more moderate. um, And, and, you know, they they flipped, you know, Trump seats. Mm -hmm. Um, So... What is the evidence that this generation actually is going to drive uh, a more kind of um, progressive liberal agenda than something more moderate just responding to the the electorate? So I think you're totally right to point that out. And I always like to say that, you know, it is true that the way to think about this is that the millennial progressive socialist base is changing the conversation, but they're not putting points on the board. They are not flipping the seats in the places that Democrats needed to win. That was done by moderates. Um, But to go back to Pete Buttigieg, I actually think Pete Buttigieg is a really good example of this because the far left has always been the far left, right? What's changed is that the center has actually moved to the left. The center is more liberal. Yes. Right, exactly. So Pete, who is, as you just described, a moderate, reviled by the left, young progressives don't like him, he's not considered to be a true progressive. Pete supports universal health care, even though he doesn't go as far as Bernie on Medicare for all. He supports the idea of universal health insurance and massive government intervention to make that happen. He supports a massive government intervention to address climate change. He supports student debt forgiveness. He wants to put millions of people to work, you know, building infrastructure, creating jobs in communities. Like, those are, for the moderate standard bearer, of the Democratic Party, of the millennials, to be advocating for positions like that, that indicates to me that the center has moved to the left. Although one could argue that our algorithm candidate is simply trying to appeal to a Democratic base in a primary, and that's what you got to say, and that's not really where he's at. Sure, Um, but isn't that always true? 
Yes, yeah. it yeah. is. And I mean, that's the political process. Um, I got to say, I'm, I'm glad, though, that you make the point uh, that you're not arguing that this is going to be a new dawn of America <laughs> that's going to transform us. Because uh, one of the books I was thinking about when I was reading yours was um, something b- well before your time, The Greening of America in 1970 by Charles Reich, which argued that the baby boomers <laughs> were going to bring in this new higher consciousness of you know personal freedom and anti-war sentiment and the counterculture that was going to transform America 10 years after he wrote that book Ronald Reagan was elected president and the country went on a very different path so his excitement about what the baby boomers were going to bring the country but the baby uh, boomers I don't know it, yeah, it may well, be that the baby boomers did something similar to what what um, Charlotte was just talking about, which is that they sort of changed the baseline, right? That uh, that the baby boomers, with their fight for civil rights, um, yeah. I mean, anti-war, okay, that gets a little more complicated, but they may have moved the center a little bit to the left as well and changed certain assumptions. What, what I wanted to ask you about, Charlotte, is how the Republican Party is reacting to this this wave that that is coming because you know the Republicans in power are also pretty old, yep. right? I mean, um, Mitch McConnell is you know seventy seven, seventy eight years old. Is the Republican Party doing anything to get ready for this? Are there, are there any signs that they understand that this generational change is you know is going to have a, a huge impact on their ability to retain power in Washington? So they were, and then Trump got elected. So basically, over the course of Obama's presidency, the Republican Party actually was doing a couple really smart things to try to attract young people. And in fact, you know, the famous 2013 RNC autopsy after Romney lost. Long forgotten. Long forgotten, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, that I argue in this book that that was actually basically right. It's just that the timing was off. So that autopsy argued that in order to survive, the Republican Party had to do better with women, people of color and young people. And during Obama's second term, they actually made some real progress on that. They elected some young women. They elected, they got a couple young Hispanic Republicans in office, like um, Elise Stefanik and Carlos Corbello, who are in this book. Those young Republicans over the course of Obama's second term, you know, were carving out this conservative path on climate change, a conservative path on immigration. Um, They were sort of, you know, helping to draw the Republican Party into the future on marriage equality, trying to say like, hey, let's calm down about this. Like, you know, And then Trump happened, and suddenly it became much, much, much more difficult for those young moderate Republicans who were trying to drag their party into the future. Well, it's interesting that anybody who knows who Elise Stefanik is these days knows – who she is because she was such an ardent defender of Donald Trump in his um, exactly. impeachment. So, yeah, yeah. Ex- yeah. Explain that because right. you you spent a lot of time with her and yeah. you did a very you know deaf portrait of her, but I think most of it was written before All of it she was written emerged be- yeah. <laughs> as this Trump defender. So explain yeah. how and why. So she so Elise Stefanik is one of the most calculating and ambitious people I've ever spoken to. She and I should clarify that, listen, you know, I had to finish this book in October. It went to the printer in November. She didn't really get her star turn 
in the impeachment hearings until January. Right. I could tell already that she was inching towards Trumpism and that she had kind of departed that the this path that she was she was kind of in this position of doing this little dance and sort of creeping down this path of. I like some things the president does. I don't like other things. And she spent most of the last four years trying to do, trying to sort of distance herself from Trump. And I could tell at the end of this writing process that she was that that period had ended and that she was about to embrace him. But I just didn't know exactly how that would happen, so I couldn't write it because it hadn't happened yet. I mean, the thing about Elise Stefanik is that she is a Republican from upstate New York, right, which means that she has no path in statewide office. She's never going to get elected to the Senate and she's never going to get elected to the governor's mansion because this is New York state. Right. So her and she is deeply loyal to the Republican Party. She's a George W. Bush person. She's a Mitt Romney person. She cares a lot about the future of the GOP. And that's why she's been somebody who's been really active in trying to get more women into the party, trying to get more young people into the party. I think she made, and again, this is just, she didn't tell me this. This is just what I think based on knowing her and talking to her. I think she made a calculation. She realized that her only path forward is up through the House. She has to keep her House seat. She wants to, she seems pretty well positioned to be in leadership. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is in this era of the Republican Party is to support Trump. I also think she has she's trying to have her cake and eat it, too, because in 10 years or 15 years when she runs for something else, you know, she'll be able to say to the Trump people, hey, I was with your guy. And she'll also be able to say to the moderate Republicans, hey, here's my record on climate change and here's my record on immigration. So I think that she's like this is a woman whose yearbook photo. This didn't make it into the book. Her like background of her yearbook page was the White House. Okay, so I think that that tells you a little bit about her aspirations. <laughs> That's a little naked. One, uh, one question. Now she was a contemporary with Buttigieg at Harvard. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. tell Probably. us about their relationship, such as it was. So they were both at Harvard at the same time. They both did the IOP. Um, Institute of Politics. Oh, the Institute of po- the Institute right. of Politics, which is like the sort of politics nerd like thing at Harvard, basically. Right. Multiple people who knew them on campus say that they went on a date. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the scuttlebutt on campus. Both of them strenuously deny this, um, <laughs> but in ways that seem like a little bit protesting too much. I think what it was was one of those like maybe dates where they got a co- like they weren't like in a relationship. They weren't in love. Clearly Pete's gay, you know, like um but Pete was dating women at that time and you know, it seems to me like the most logical explanation for this is that they went on this coffee date that was like a maybe date and they both kind of realized that they I, didn't I like each other. I should point out, since this is a podcast, that Charlotte's using air quotes. Air quotes, she's yes. Date. Um, Pseudo date. Yeah, okay, pseudo-date. last question for you, uh, yeah. Charlotte. Are there new uh, millennial candidates um, who you're looking at in this uh, upcoming election who you think uh, are going to be exciting to people the way that AOC was. I mean, I did notice that some of the, in some of these primary races, the progressive candidate who've taken on more moderate Democrats have lost. Yeah. Um, Cisneros, um, yeah. for example. But what are you seeing in the kind of next class coming um, in terms of this this wave that you write about? So I have to be, I have to clarify, like, I have been really focused on 2020. So, um, and I've been covering that for time. So I haven't been as much like searching these people out as I once was. 
I definitely think, you know, Charles Booker in Kentucky is really exciting. There are some exciting young people who are running for mayor in New York City. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges of having this presidential election right now is that, frankly, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to give oxygen and give some profile to people who don't get covered because they're not going to be president, right? And the way our political media is is operated right now, it's like so focused on the presidency. Um, and maybe I've fallen into that a little bit since I finished this book because I've been really focused on the presidency. But um, I will do some research and I will get back to you with okay. some more names. Now, I've got one more for Charlotte because it's a passage in my favorite chapter in the book. The chapter is called Harry Potter and the Spawn of the Boomers. <laughs> and in the course of that, you cite another book by somebody named Gene Twinge mm-hmm. who wrote that uh, the new millennials simply take it for granted that we should all feel good about ourselves. We are all special and we all deserve to follow our dreams. And then you write, this, of course, has led to the widespread perception that millennials are entitled selfie-obsessed narcissists more concerned with their personal brand than the state of the world, a stereotype that is firmly rooted in obnoxious truth. No wonder so many of their elders find them so irritating. Hmm. Um, I wonder why that one stuck out to you. (laughs) So um, should we all be prepared to be irritated for the... um, Years to come by Listen, these self-entitled millennials? I think that – I think that's a good question. I also think that no generation has a monopoly on being irritating, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know – So it, you, millennial, find us boomers oh, irritating? You, you bet we do. <laughs> Just yes. think with Gen Z. <laughs> right. Think of you guys. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and this gets back, I think, almost precisely to this question, very smart question you asked earlier about, like, are we talking about better or are we talking about different because boomers were irritating in so many ways and continue to be irritating in so many ways. And listen, millennials are also irritating in in totally different ways. And guess what? I bet Gen Z are going to find their own exceptional ways to irritate everybody <laughs> around them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we've got an irritating future ahead. Well, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, Eskoff's from the greatest generation, so we don't have to worry about that with him. No, also no, irritating. I just, I just look that way. Anyway, um, Charlotte, we should point out that Charlotte is the daughter of a frequent Skullduggery guest, uh, our old Newsweek colleague, Jonathan Alter. Well, um, he may be so losing the Alter seat that's on right, Skullduggery. That's right. Also, yeah. we've been guests. We should we should actually promote the serious- Alter family politics. Alter family, family politics. politics. It's right. the best name for a show about exactly that, <laughs> which is the Alter family get together and yeah. they talk politics, which <laughs> yeah. is amazing. Who needs to wait for Thanksgiving? We exactly. can just listen to the Alter family fighting among themselves. Charlotte, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to chairman of the American Conservative Union, Matt Schlapp, and author and Time correspondent, Charlotte Alter, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.